this morning, you'll know that we looked in Luke 14 at this great invite to a great banquet. But we saw this morning that there were some who wrongly esteemed people and possessions and so passed up on this great invite. They wrongly estimated the value of the invitation, the greatness of the banquet, and exchanged it for things like uh, wives and cows and land. And we viewed them as foolish this morning. We, we had a good laugh at them. Uh, so the passage we come to tonight is directly following on from that, where Jesus, to now to a larger group, explains that there is going to be cost in following him. As we saw this morning, to come to the banquet for those people would have perhaps meant laying down cows and grass and wife. And then Jesus calls us to weigh it up, to have a good old think, is it worth it? Is it worth this life of discipleship? Is it worth receiving the invite if there's going to be cost? And so he acts as a kind of terrible salesman. In our generation, we're always being sold stuff, right? And everybody tries to put up all the benefits straight away, and there's always hidden cost. We do lots of small print, don't we? And so you have to be really cautious when you see a deal to think, oh, what's the small print? Not so with Jesus. Jesus actually gets the stuff that we would probably put in small print, try and hide, and he lays it out boldly. Look, this is the hard stuff. This is what what it's going to cost. If you're going to come after me, this is what it's going to be like. So if you're not yet a Christian and you're trying to work out what is this Christianity thing, is it worth it? What's involved in a Christian life? Then weigh it up. Look hard at what we're thinking about tonight. Look hard at what you would gain through receiving Jesus. Weigh it up and then go for it. And if you're already a Christian, we're going to come across some stuff that really probably challenges a gentle Christianity that we all try and lead. Uh, Jesus is calling for something so different from what we perhaps think is our Christian walk. And so if you're already a disciple of Jesus, there's probably some re-evaluation, some self-examination to work out, actually, how am I doing in this? And it's probably going to be quite hard and quite challenging for us, but I hope that we can be really practical about what seems to be some difficult concepts. I hope we can get nuts and bolts about what it looks like to do this in Edinburgh, where life can seem so easy. So let's read together from Luke 14. So that's on page 1048. And we'll pick up from verse 25, exactly where we left off this morning. So that's Luke 14, starting at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 men? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray together before we look into this. Heavenly Father, we do pray, Psalm 119, verse 18, that you would open our eyes 
to see wonderful things in your law. Father, would you help us now by your Holy Spirit to understand the truth of your word and would you help us to understand what it means to live out this truth. Help us not to be uh, hearers of the word uh, who reject it, but people who hear the word and do it. So Father, we ask your blessing on our time together now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see that the context has changed a bit from this morning. Uh, Liam made it really obvious this morning that what was said was said around a small table, a gathering of a few people. But now we see, look again, verse 25, that this is a large crowd occasion. Jesus throughout his life drew a a large crowd. Many of us know that. But the interesting thing is in this crowd, you've got to wonder who's there. This is a big bunch of people who've come because of the hysteria that's following Jesus. So likely to be in that crowd are those who are curious but not committed. People are interested, but they're maybe not at the stage of saying, yes, I'm going to follow this guy. Likewise, there's probably some people who are there because there's a crowd there. When you see a crowd, you want to join the crowd, like on Princess Street when there's one of those people doing a strange street performance and you see a circle of people around, you go and join, even if you're not that interested in breakdancing or keepy-uppies or whatever it is. You join a crowd. So the truth is of this crowd, there's probably people who are taggers on, but not true followers. Um, Youth, it's your Sunday, so we've got to direct this a little bit at you. And I wonder if youth in a church is quite often like a crowd. There's kind of this group mentality. You know there's going to be other people there uh, you can come along and be curious, and that's good. But truthfully, you come along while it kind of suits, while there's a little huddle and a hoard to go with. And so you might be a tagger on, but not a true follower. You might be genuinely curious, but not yet committed. And there is a difference. Uh, likewise, you might just be in the early stages of commitment. You've become a Christian, you're following Jesus, but there's more to understand about what it is to live out the next probably 60 years for you guys following Jesus. So what does it look like kicking on from here at school and then going off into work and into family life and into all those things? And so I hope this is really helpful for you. So whether you're a tagger along or you're taking early steps, wherever you're at, you need to understand from Jesus tonight, there is a cost in following him. There is a cost and the call is to weigh it up. Uh, This is a section in Luke where there's already been some quite strong, vivid imagery, like this morning uh, where Jesus said, you guys who got the invite, you're never even going to get to taste this. That's strong, that's bold. And so it should be no surprise to us that we see in this passage Jesus saying, if you do not, you cannot. That's the refrain of this passage. We see that in three places. In verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not, he cannot be my disciple. Again in verse 27, anyone who does not cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, anyone who does not cannot be my disciple. Jesus is making really plain, if you're going to be a disciple, there's some things you've got to do. There's some things involved in that life. Uh, If you don't know what the word disciple means, it means like pupil, follower. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to say of Jesus, he is my teacher, he is my leader. He's who I listen to, learn from, and try and follow and emulate. Importantly for us to understand though, there's a difference between salvation and discipleship. So everything we're talking about tonight, the cost of discipleship, isn't what saves us. We're not doing this to try and get saved. So salvation is still free and instant and all God's work. But the reality of discipleship, the life of a saved person, is that it's costly. It's lifelong and it's something you do with God. So there is a difference. But understand, all that we're looking at tonight is not what saves us, but it's what we're like as saved people. It's what saved life is going to look like. So we're going to see cost 
tracking back there. If we could flick back one, that'd be great before everyone knows where we're going. So, I think we can break down the cost of being a discipleship in this passage into two sections. Firstly then, relational cost. Let's read again. Uh, Read with me, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers, his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, if you do not, you cannot. And the thing you've got to do is hate. That seems unbelievably strong language, doesn't it? We might say, uh, I hate seafood, and I do hate seafood, but this is hate, hate people. Hey, brother, sister, that's so strong, isn't it? And it is deliberately provocative language. We're meant to hear this and think, what on earth does he mean by that? Does he mean I'm meant to go out and viscerally hate my family? Hate my own life? What does that mean? That seems so drastic, and and it seems counter to some of the other teaching of Jesus, right? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, how am I to do that if you tell me to hate my own life? So it's there to deliberately make us think, what does he mean? And we're meant to understand it in terms of comparison. The, the point here is that you're meant to compare. You're meant to see that following Jesus is a life of loving Jesus in a way that, in which that all our other relationships, our affections for them are less than our affection for Jesus. So if we compared love for Christ and love for anything else, such would be our love for Christ that that would look like hatred. It's a comparative It's meant to polarize our affections. Not that we go out and we practically hate people. No, we're called to love people, but practically, we're called to love Jesus in a different way. He's to take top tier and he's not going to share it. Do you remember the nursery rhyme? There's 10 in a bed and the little one says, roll over. Get out, roll over. And eventually he bumps them all off, just like Jesus in this scenario. If we imagine your heart as a podium, he wants first place and everything else must roll over and roll off. It is not for sharing. They must come second, third, fourth, fifth, but Jesus and Jesus alone in the throne of our hearts is to be first. And so there's a relational cost because disciples are people who treasure Jesus so much so that it affects our other relationships. In fact, we're to treasure him so much that in fact our other relationships pale in significance. So important to me is Jesus that these things diminish in their value and their worth. And so I prioritize my love for him and my love for other things gets lower down the chain. Disciples are people that treasure. Uh, you might be thinking, how, does that, how is that a cost? Think about it. Think it through. If you're going to debunk your place in your own heart, maybe I was at first living for me, and now Jesus comes into my life, and I drop down. That changes things for me. Uh, maybe I was living first and foremost for my family, but Jesus comes in, and they drop down. That changes my interaction with them. They're no longer most precious to me. They're second. And a long way behind in second. It's like Usain Bolt and the rest of the field. Yeah, they come second. You got the silver, but you were two hours slower than this guy. He killed you. That's where it's going to be. And so for some of us, that has meant that following Jesus literally means a break of relationship with other people. That has been my own experience. That has been the experience of many others. But the choice is I prioritize Christ. He's first place. And so I will not sacrifice, I will not switch that back around for the sake of any other relationship because I treasure Jesus most highly. And that does change relationships. It's going to change, uh, as Liam mentioned this morning, how we respond to things so that a friend may say, come with me, and you might say, no, I'm actually going to go to church today. Or a family member might demand all of your attention 
And she said, actually, no, I'm going to do my quiet time this morning. And I'm not really ready to do breakfast with you until I've done it. It's going to change relationships. It's not going to make us less good as husbands and sons and fathers and wives and sisters. It's going to improve that, but it's to be reordered. There's a relational cost. The second thing we see then in terms of the cost of following Jesus is a sacrificial cost. Come with me again to verse 27. And we'll read 33 as well. Verse 27. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. If you do not, you cannot. See the refrain? Um, let's think about Jesus' life. If these are going to be people that follow Jesus, following in his footsteps, what's that going to look like? Well, the life of Jesus in Luke is sacrifice, suffering, death, but glory later. We studied uh, Peter together as a church, didn't we? And we saw the pattern of Jesus' life, and so the pattern for Christian life is suffering now, but glory later. Just like Jesus. If we're going to follow in his footsteps, it should be no surprise we end up the places he ends up. And at this stage in Luke, Jesus knows exactly where it's going. This section of Luke, Jesus is looking at Jerusalem, looking to the cross. This is where it's going. And so if you're going to come with me, that's very likely where it'll be going for you. That's the call of Jesus. Take up your cross. Uh, To paraphrase that, that's in in our context. Take up your gallows. Take up your electric chair. Take up death. It's a shocking thing to say, isn't it? I think we've toned down this phrase a little bit in our society, haven't we? So now if you give up your seat on the bus, someone might say to you, oh, we've all got a little cross to bear. Or if you've got noisy neighbors, oh, we've all got a little cross to bear. That cheapens it. Because the reality is, for the people Jesus is saying it to, for many of them, it does literally mean martyrdom. The early followers of Jesus were marked by suffering persecution and so it's been for all of church history in fact in fact we're the anomaly that we live in an age and a time where nobody's killing us in this country for the faith but truthfully there's places right now in our world where this happens and there has always been places in church history where this has happened and so the choice is be ready for this Uh, whether we have to come to the point of Jesus or life which I don't think all of us will we need to be ready to make that choice Even if someone doesn't put us in that situation and hold a gun to our heads, even if that's not our experience, the choice needs to be there. That if it was Jesus or life, I choose Jesus. That's got to be the choice for all disciples. But more than that, we see in this call to take up our cross, uh, the call just to normal Christian life. This isn't just the call for people who are going to end up being martyrs. No, this is the call for every Christian to take up the cross think about Christian life is marked by these things isn't it Christian life is constantly daily death to self death to the sinful nature every day self-denial that's the shape of Christian life Christian life is cross-shaped that's our lives we're constantly marked by trying to put to death the sinful nature so every morning we wake up and we're at war against the sinful nature in ourselves that's costly In another sense as well, the reality of being a Christian is that you surrender your life. Uh, We see this in verse 33, don't we? We give up everything. Our lives, our relationship, our money, our stuff, given up to Jesus. Handed over. So it's not necessarily going to mean for all of us that we have to sell everything, but it means for all of us that we relinquish our claim. 
This is a renouncing language in verse 33. We take our hands off it. We say, I still have it, but it's not mine. It's on an open hand, not a closed hand. It can be taken. It doesn't belong to me the same way. And so when we become Christians, we say to Jesus, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. We take up our cross. And so the whole life of a Christian becomes cross-shaped. And this is obviously costly. I don't have to spell out the cost of what it means to be someone who follows Jesus because we see his cost and we see the cost of the early disciples and we see the cost in that we're going to lay down our sinful nature, seek to crucify it with Jesus and live for someone else and to something else. It's cost in being a disciple. So that's the cost. If you're going to be a disciple, you're going to treasure Jesus in a way that changes your relationships and you're going to follow Jesus in a way which changes your interaction with life. That's what Jesus has laid down for us. But he calls us to consider it. He calls us to consider it. Weigh it up. That's what we see in these two illustrations, which we have between 28 and 32. So we'll read those again together, and we'll try and understand what Jesus is trying to say through this picture. So verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost? to see if he has enough money to complete it. For if he lays the foundation and isn't able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able... He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. There we have it then, two pictures, a builder and a king. The common thing there, look with me again at verse 28, sit down and estimate. And then again in verse 31, will he not first sit down and consider? The refrain in this, the, the sense of this is, for both scenarios, we've got to sit down, think about it, mull it over. That's the call, isn't it? That's why we put on things like Christianity Explored so people can sit down, chew it over. Think about it. What's the cost? What's the gain? So for both the builder and the king, there's this call to sit down, think about it, make a decision. Uh, Interestingly, though, with the builder, we'll look at the builder first. He's got a choice, doesn't he? He can either build or not build. There's no pressure on him to build. He just has to make a choice. The key thing to understand from the builder is if you're going to make that choice and go for it, understand what it takes to see it to completion know what it takes to go the distance calculate the cost call a quantity surveyor work it out what's it going to take to go the distance because a half finished building is an embarrassment Uh, there was a stage in the building of our trams where it looked like there might be tracks that never had anything in them it's an embarrassment the cost was wrongly estimated it's an embarrassment it's the shame of our city Now maybe the glory of our city, I don't know. I don't go to the airport that often. And so the call for the builder is he's meant to be someone who looks before he leaps. Don't don't jump into this without thinking it through. It's like jumping into marriage because you like weddings and you've never thought about marriage. It's foolish. Think it through. Look before you leap. That's important. So then what's different about the king? Again, the refrain is for the king, sit down. Consider, think about it. It's important. It's a serious matter, isn't it? This is life or death. It's meant to weigh it up. It's weighty. But look what's different about the king. There is an imminence. This force is coming. There is war. He must make a choice. 
He's got to sit down, yeah. He's got to look, yeah. He's got to weigh it up. He cannot remain neutral. So he must look before he leaps, but he's got to leap. He's got to jump because there's a decision to be made. He's got to do it. War is coming. Is it fight or is it make terms of peace? That's the call. And so for the choice to whether to, or not to become a Christian or not is the same. So from the builder, you've got to learn, understand what it is to go the distance. And from the king, you've got to learn, actually, this is imminent. I've got to leap. There is a day coming where you may have delayed the choice for your whole life, but you cannot delay it forever. The day is coming. You've got to look before you leap, but leap. And for the king, there's an obvious choice, isn't there? Like with Christianity, there is an obvious choice. Can you beat this opposition force? What's your chance against this king and so what are the terms of peace it's imminent so for us then uh, if you're not a Christian here or maybe you're already a Christian you think what is it to weigh up the Christian hope Uh, we've seen the cost that it's going to change relationship and change our interaction with our own lives it's going to be a life of perpetual death so what's the gain we all make costly decisions every day right when you came out tonight you decided was it worth the £2.60 of fuel to get here was it worth the time? You made a decision, you estimated cost, and you went for it. So what does that look like for the Christian decision? Here's the cost, but what's the gain? Because people have been doing this Christianity thing for 2,000 years. People are still making decisions for Jesus. And you might read this and think, why? Why? It changes all your relationships. You lose some stuff. Life gets difficult. So why? What's the gain? I love how uh, Peter puts the truth of the Christian hope in his letter when he says Christ died once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Here's the gain of Christianity is that through Jesus taking our unrighteousness and giving us his righteousness we get him. The Christian promise is not an easy life. We've seen that. The Christian promise is not that you will never have to suffer and never face cost and always have what you like. That's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is that whatever your circumstance is, whatever you're going through, with or without, you get Jesus. You get him. That's the glory of the gospel. You get him. So what is it about this Jesus that makes weighing it up and going for him worthwhile? You get him? all this cost and you just get him oh well he is something special because he is the one who fixes our problem he's the he's the peace delegation he's peace delegation righteous for the unrighteous he solves our problem of sin he takes away the punishment of sin he takes away death and he offers us him Uh, from this morning it was a beautiful feast wasn't it oh what a spread And that's true for the Christian. We get the spread. We get the joy of being at the great feast. But the joy of the great feast is the great host. Once your enemy now seated at your table. He's at the table. That's what makes it such a feast. Yes, the spread is excellent. But the host is magnificent. That's the excitement of the Christian hope. We get to be at his table. And he's wonderful. And so if you're looking into Christianity, look hard at Jesus what is it to gain Jesus why is he so good why would you go for this look into him look at him understand that a life of following him may be costly but that he's worth it and so leap 
look before you leap and leap. We see this really well played out in one of Jesus' stories in Matthew 13. I'll just read it to you. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells two little stories. They're only one-liners. It goes like this. The kingdom of heaven, which is this notion of all you would gain in getting Jesus, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then, sold in his, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. That's exactly what becoming a Christian is, isn't it? you realize there is something of such value, such a treasure, that actually to give up everything to gain him is worth it. That's what Christians think. We believe Jesus is so sufficient and so satisfying that actually compared to him, everything else is rubbish. Everything else is rubbish. He is what we treasure most highly. Perhaps one of the most common explanations of this, where you see this so clearly in a Christian's life, is in the life of a guy called Paul who's a writer of many of, the, many of the books in the New Testament. And Paul was a person who had a lot and then followed Jesus and went through a lot of suffering. His life was marked by being beaten, shipwrecked, killed. That's Paul. And this is what he said about, about Jesus, about gaining him. In his letter to the Philippians, he writes, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God that is by faith. That's what happens when you become a Christian. That's what you come to understand. Jesus is that valuable. That actually, compared to him, everything else is rubbish. So if you're not a Christian, maybe if you're a youthy here and you're uh, coming along but not yet committed, weigh it up, look into what it is to gain Jesus, and leap. That's the call. And so if you're a Christian, um, probably like me, you're thinking, what, what does applying some of this stuff in Luke look like? It's quite a drastic thing, isn't it? What does it look like to die to self what does it look like to give up everything in our context where we still have stuff don't we we're still house owners and car owners and relationship havers and that's still us so is the call of this passage that we give all of that up and we move to a context where we can get persecuted and then we're being faithful to the bible I don't think that's it so I want us to take a few minutes to work out actually what does this look like for Christians and then we're going to spend some time privately thinking about what it's going to look like to employ these kind of principles to our lives and so I think the problem is here's where we're at so many of us are doing so little for him who gave so much that's the problem we see in this passage isn't it that really some of us are still clinging on to to wife and cow and field like this morning and that even in our Christian life, we may be sometimes wrongly of valuing him, of devaluing him. And so for us as Christians, we don't want to be people who give part to him who gave all. And so what does, what does this kind of radical Christianity look like in an ordinary situation? I think there's maybe four principles we can have 
I'm going to put these on my fridge this week um, and keep them there and try and think through what does it look like to live life through these lenses so what's it going to look like to treasure Christ most highly to, to esteem him more than other relationships to value him above other possessions what's that look like and I think the first part of it is a heart resolve that actually inside of ourselves we've made the choice that if it came to a decision between Jesus and everything we choose Jesus we've already made the decision so effectively if the hard times land upon our lives we've made the decision if it comes down to that I'm already there I've already decided so if you're a Christian you need to have that heart resolve if the choice must be made we choose Jesus we choose Jesus that's where, we're, that's where we can be at isn't it whether we face this persecution or not whether we face these choices or not that's where we've got to be at have that heart resolve now because that will weather us through storms second thing is that we must engage in life if you want to flick onto the next slide brilliant so we are still to engage in life own a house own a dog get married have a family do those things do those things you can still eat and, and enjoy life but actually even in the way we engage in life we seek to manipulate it we use it so we deal with everything in ways that draw us nearer to Jesus it seems complicated and this is why I'm writing it on my fridge I need to chew it over and work at it but here's the thing so we use the circumstances we're in the people we know the relationships we have we use them for the sake of drawing nearer to Jesus uh, let me explain so with something positive with a good gift uh, like uh, me and Grace on a car it's a lovely car it's a great gift from God but we try and view it through that lens as a gift from God so actually I'm going to enjoy my car with gratitude to Jesus so I'm using my ch- my car to draw me nearer to Jesus so in gratitude for good things I get closer to Jesus how does that work with something bad well actually when I endure sufferings I choose I'm going to endure these with Jesus I'm going to endure these trusting in Jesus patient in him so effectively I use the bad situations of life the good gifts of life to draw me nearer to Jesus instead of pushing them up in my affections so my wife jumps back into top's place no I use my marriage to help me understand more of Jesus to draw me to him so we use life to draw ourselves to Jesus third thing we engage in life again but we deal with this world in a way which shows exactly where our treasure is this is, this is perhaps the last two are more significant to our witness to the world but actually we're still going to have houses we're still going to have money, food, friends, family all of these things you can still go and enjoy a Starbucks but actually we have these things God has given us these things that we might use them in a way that shows exactly where our treasure is we use these things in a way which says yeah we've got them but in our open handedness with them we declare you know what if this thing comes or goes it's not my treasure it's not my treasure this is not what I value most highly so with something like money we use our money in a way which says I'm not about the money I say I'm happy to be generous with it salary goes up by a thousand pounds I'm not going to leap for joy and make a song and dance about it great what a gift salary goes down by a thousand pounds I'm not going to whinge about it actually I'm going to try and show to the world through my enjoyment of these things or my suffering with these things that my treasure is Jesus so we're showing all the time our treasure is Jesus fourthly again powerful for our witness we lose without losing So even if we lose all the world has to offer, we do not lose our joy or treasure or our lives. 
This is the truth in being a Christian, isn't it? Because the glory of the gospel is that we get God, actually we can lose all things and retain all of our joy, all of our treasure, all of our life, because our life, our treasure, and our joy is him. We lose without losing. It's like that bit in in Corinthians where it says about owning things but not owning things, grieving without really grieving, being happy without being really happy. We lose things without losing. Actually, we can lose earthly relationships. We can face persecution. We can lose comfort. But we do so in a way where actually, I've still got all of my joy. Because it was never in that thing. It was never in that thing. That thing brought me happiness, but my joy is Jesus. So take it. I don't lose my joy. And even if we lose our lives, we don't really lose our lives. Because they're hidden with Christ on high. And so I think these things are hard to grapple with. I've been pushed this week to think about what does this look like? Uh, what does it look like to love my wife well, to treat her well, but to love Christ more? Practically, how does that affect maybe my calendar or my daily schedule? So um, I think it's going to be good for us to spend maybe five minutes just in quiet, thinking of, on those things, and I've put up a few questions afterwards to help us think through them. So if the band would play some music quietly, and we can just take five